Well, we are continuing our study of Romans today, and we are in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 5 through 11, and you'll want to get there in your uh, copies of God's Word. As I told you last week, many people see Romans 8 as the most important chapter in all the Bible. The book of Romans, as we have been seeing for uh, half a year or more now, is the most detailed and clear explanation of the heart of the gospel. And Romans 8, as we started to see last week and as we're going to continue to see through the fall, is the place where Paul takes this deep dive into how that gospel works in our hearts to change us. I told you last week, as we started Romans 8, that Romans 8 is kind of like a summit in Romans from where you can look out and you can see more clearly all that is around you. And we're going to be seeing that Romans 8 is written by Paul to comfort Christ's followers who wrestle with sin so that we do not despair. Uh, Paul wrote Romans 8 to give us this invincible assurance in Christ that God is 100% for us so that we do not doubt his love, that love that we were just singing about. And that's what we were seeing last week. Do you remember how, how the heart of the gospel is this reality that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Anybody notice the two earthquakes we had in the Bay Area the last couple of weeks? <laughs> um, Romans 8 gives us in a world that's always seeming to shake around us this unmovable bedrock in our soul that God is our omnipotent ally. And so when life is hard, that means with him with us, we can persevere in hope and joy and courage because we know that God loves us and God is always working for our good. See, we ultimately know all of these things because we are united to Christ. That's what Paul has started telling us a couple chapters ago. That's what he's telling us in Romans 8. We are in Christ, in Christ. And Paul is going to show us today in our text, this is verses 5 through 11, that to be in Christ is to be in the Spirit, to be in the Spirit. And we're going to be seen starting in verse 5 today, going all the way through verse 17. That's going to be next week that Paul is just talking about life in the Spirit. So, so today's going to be part one, and next week's going to be part two on life in the Spirit. And, and, and Paul is telling us in our text today, these first few verses, that the Christian life is fundamentally a supernatural life. It's not a natural life. It's Supernatural, And by supernatural, I mean that to even become a Christian requires nothing less than the power of God at work in the human soul by the Spirit. So to be a Christian is not a hobby. It is not like joining a club. It's not like a self-improvement project. It's, it's like something you do to, you know, make yourself feel better about yourself or, or something you do because you, you were raised that way or something you do because you're religious. It is God's supernatural work in our hearts. And Jesus actually has a phrase for that. Maybe you know it. He calls this reality being born again. Born again. It's like a whole new life. John 3, 3, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, and that means, and we just need to keep saying it because 
Self-righteousness is the human uh, being default, that, that the fundamental message of Christianity is not do more, try harder, be better. The message that we preach, that we believe here at Southwinds is quite simply, you must be born again. That's what Paul's talking about. See, we are, we are not made right with God by our niceness. Have you noticed there's a lot of people that are nice, but Jesus did not rise from the grave to save us through niceness. A lot, a lot of people, they think that's what Christianity is about, you know, just being a nice person. And that's one of the reasons why many people are not interested in Christianity because you do not need Jesus to be nice. You really don't. And so the ultimate question before us is, is not if we're moral or nice or if we go to church or if we prayed a, a prayer one time when we were a child. The ultimate question always evermore is, are you born again? The ultimate question is not, are you nice, but have you been made new? And see, Paul is going to tell us today, and especially next week, we're going to start seeing it more, that it's only the Holy Spirit who can do that. The last thing we saw last week in verse four, if you want to kind of peek back at it, was that God had done all these things in Christ Jesus so that we could walk, how? According to the spirit. And that's what Romans eight is all about, life in the spirit. Now today, in our text, verses five to 11, we're going to see four pairs of contrasts and they are contrasts between the natural life of the flesh and the supernatural life of the spirit and as we see those contrasts, they're going to help us understand uh, how we can live in the Spirit. So with all of that in mind, listen to the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 5, this is what Paul writes. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is God's word and all God's people say, amen. amen. So four contrasts. They all are gonna show us how to live in the spirit. And Paul begins in verse five by saying, in the end, fundamentally, basically at root, there are only two kinds of people, two types of people, and, and they're marked by flesh or they're marked by spirit. Verse five again says, listen, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. What I want you to see here is at root, Paul is 
uh, talking and thinking philosophically. He's, he's employing the language of ontology. If you don't remember that or if you've never heard that, ontology is, is the study of the nature of being. It's uh, uh, the, the study of who uh, we are or what something is by nature. And so Paul is saying there are two kinds, two uh, natures, two types of human beings. He's saying some people live according to the flesh, while other people according to the spirit. And he says, everyone does one of those two things because that's who they are. It's their nature. They're either of the flesh or of the spirit. And what that means is this, who we are leads to how we live. Do you understand that? Being always precedes doing People of the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Why? Well, it's because that's their nature. They are of the flesh. And people of the spirit, Paul says, set their minds on the things of the spirit because they are of the spirit. And the point is that our lives flow from who we are, our our fundamental nature. And again, according to the Bible, there are only two types of people. And we categorize people by a whole lot of different things, right? We, we categorize by race according to education or socioeconomic status, according to ethnicity or, or nationality. But Paul says in the end, there are only two types of people. According to God's word, those marked by flesh or by spirit. So what does flesh mean? Well, this word Paul uses doesn't refer to our physical bodies so much, flesh and uh, blood and muscles and bone. It, it refers instead to our natural, corrupt, unredeemed human nature. That's what flesh is. It, it's who we are apart from God. And that phrase, set your mind, is actually just one word in Greek. And this is about our, our fundamental mindset. In other words our basic nature, how we think, again, catch this, flows from who we are. Our mindset flows out of our nature, who we are, what we most want, our affections and desires and and purposes. And Paul is saying, by our nature, we are according to the flesh, meaning naturally our mindset is on everything but God. See, the Bible teaches from front to back that the compass of our nature, every single human being has its true north set um, on the self, like capital S. So not a capital N, but a capital S. That's where we just naturally point. We cannot help it. It is who we are. And, And this doesn't mean that we only always evermore think only of ourselves. It just means we naturally see our lives without reference to God. So life is therefore about what we want, about what we think, about what we own and how we feel and, and how we look and what we believe is true. It's our money, our stuff, our time, our power. That's just human being, right? It's the way we are. And we are fine without God, we think, because the compass of our heart is tuned to the true north of self, and therefore we don't think we need God. And in fact, we think God gets in our way. And Paul is just showing us here that people are not like this because they think like this. People think like this because they are by nature like this. Are you tracking with me here? You're hearing what Paul is saying. You see, this is This is why when you 
Maybe you, you talk to an unbelieving family member or friend or coworker. They just have no interest in God. They don't see why you'd want to bother with this. They, they could land on the spectrum somewhere between like absolute antagonism, hostility, and absolute indifference, somewhere in between. But, you know, you start to talk to them maybe about Jesus, about truth, about reality, and their eyes kind of glaze over. And they'll, they'll say stuff like, do we have to talk about this? Can we just talk about the World Series or a football game today or maybe the stock? or some stock market or something like that, please. Now, honestly, maybe sometimes they respond like this because you're obnoxious and you should work on that if that's you. But the point ultimately is they don't want to talk about God because they're in the flesh. And so maybe if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ yet, maybe you're here looking in, checking things out, you're wondering You need to understand that those who have not yet gladly submitted to Jesus by faith, if that's you, you need to know. And this this was true about every one of us in this room at some point in our lives. You need to understand that your doubting and your disinterest and your indifference to God is not a neutral thing. It comes from your nature. It comes from your flesh. And for us to be saved, it means we are to be saved from our flesh which is what we're going to see as we keep moving forward uh, in this chapter. But before we go forward, Paul also talks about those who live according to the Spirit. And he says they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So to set the mind or your mind on the Spirit is to, to recalibrate the direction of your fundamental mindset. And now it's pointing towards Jesus. Or you could just say it this way. The Spirit resets our true north of our life toward God. And that then impacts the trajectory of the rest of our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we only think things about God, but what it means is we now fundamentally uh, see ourselves, we understand our lives, we understand everything in this, this world in reference to God, in relationship with God. That colors everything, and it is a radical change from our natural self-centeredness to now loving God. It's a change from hostility to God to devotion to God. And out of this, we begin to enjoy God. We begin to grieve over sin. God becomes our treasure and we want to please him, not to earn his love, but because we have his love. We've talked about that a lot, right? As we've been making our way through Romans. And of course, we don't do this perfectly. Um, I just want to check again here because I need to know since we don't allow perfect people in this church. Are there any perfect people here today? Because if there are, you guys need to, you need to move on and leave. <laughs> but nobody's perfect, right? So we're all good. Everybody good? We're not perfect. We, 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 we don't do this perfectly. Our affections for God go up sometimes and they go down sometimes vestiges of sin, try to choke out our our love for God. But the fundamental mindset that we have toward God has changed. We begin to see everything in relationship to him and that that leads to a, a changed life. Sometimes people ask me, well, how do I know where where I am with the Lord? How do I know if I belong to God? Well, look to the direction of your thinking, the direction of your desiring the direction of your living. Where is your true north? What dominates your thoughts? Are you like preoccupied with yourself, with your goals, your ambitions, your desires, your appetites, 
for the world. I mean, this doesn't mean you don't think about things that are in this world, your family, your marriage, your work, your home, your, your interests. You don't, it doesn't mean you just think about spiritual stuff, but those things do not define your life and capture your heart apart from God and his purposes. See, Paul is just making it so clear that living according to the spirit, true conversion therefore involves this radical break from one way of being human to another, from the flesh to the spirit. And so if we are in Christ, we have a new nature. It's a new way of being human. And it is oriented around the living God. And that changes everything in our lives. And I'm just saying to you, if this is true, if you, if you know Jesus, then this is true of you. You have a new nature You are no longer defined by and ruled by who you once were, by what you once did. You are no longer what you once were. You are a new person in Christ. See, Paul is just driving this home. He he wants to drive home the fact that in the flesh, outside of Jesus, we cannot make ourselves right with God. We cannot. We can only be made right with God by being in Christ by having the spirit make us new. That's the first contrast. Second contrast is there are two ultimate destinations for every human being, and those are death versus life. That's what he's saying in verse six. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And Paul is just saying there are eternal consequences to whatever nature we we live out of. Everyone by nature is heading ultimately somewhere to some destination. And at the end of each destination, there's two options, only two. There's either death or life. You see, apart from Jesus, as we just saw, the fundamental mindset we have is set on the flesh by nature. And the consequence of that fleshly orientation is death, separation from God. And we already see that in our world to some extent. We see spiritual death now. I mean, that's why the world is so broken and there's so much pain and suffering. It's because we have disconnected from God. And and even now in our broken world as sinful people all around this world, we are experiencing what happens when you leave the giver of life. You experience death. And that's what Paul is talking about here. But he's also pointing out the reality that one day that death will be experienced in full in the just judgment of God to come. And Paul's just saying, it always works like this. And this is what I want you to get. I want you to understand, don't deceive yourself into thinking something different. The flesh always leads to death. Everybody say always. Always Always leads to death, no exceptions. The flesh always leads to guilt. It always leads to regret. It always leads to remorse. It always leads to relational damage. It always leads to pride and self-righteousness. And and therefore, it always leads to God's just judgment. Always, 100% of the time. No exceptions. And stop and think about, that sounds real negative to some of you, but, but no, it is so kind of God to point that out to us. It is part of his mercy to show us this. 
because God made us to know him and love him and trust him and find our life in him. That, 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 that's why he made us. And, and therefore, he's just reminding us, apart from him, there's only spiritual death. And one of the things I know is that there's a lot of people, maybe even some here in this room right now, who will hear this and say, come on, pastor. I mean, I know how you pastor people are. You're so negative. Come on, look around you. People are basically good. And I'll sometimes say, at least at first, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, in one sense, although part of me wants to say, really, look around you? You think everybody's good? I, I, I don't quite understand how you come to that conclusion. But we'll set that aside for the moment. And I'll talk to this person. I'll say, we, 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 we need to first ask, okay, so we understand each other. What kind of good are we actually talking about? And, and, and we in this room who know the Lord should be honest about this, that unbelievers, people who don't know God, they can be incredibly nice and sweet and altruistic and selfless, surprisingly compassionate, oftentimes more than believers. I mean, you know, I know some of you people here in this room, you're not as nice as some of those people out there, right? Sometimes that actually is the case. Non-believers sometimes do great earthly good in this sense, but that is not what God is after because God always looks on the inside, not the outside. And the issue is the fundamental disposition of our hearts toward God. And for everyone apart from God, that fundamental disposition is naturally and always rebellious and self-referencing. It is a disposition, and it's true of everyone apart from Christ. It is a disposition that seeks life apart from the author of life, that enjoys the gifts, but not the giver, that loves creation, but not the creator. And I want you to think about this. This is not an innocuous thing. Only rebellious people want gifts of God, but not God. And, and you know this, you know this in human relationships, right? What, what do you think of people who just want stuff from you, but they don't care about you? What do you, what do you think of kids who just want you to give them things, but they don't want to ever spend time with you? They don't love you. You don't like that, do you? And just take that and magnify that to an infinite degree when you think about creatures and the creator of the entire universe. How dishonoring that is and therefore how wicked and sinful that is. And therefore that means God is just to judge us in that rebellion and to, to judge that with death. So Paul is just saying, you get on the road of the flesh, it's a one lane road with one dis destination. There are no off ramps to any other place. That only destination is where you're headed. That one is death. But then Paul adds, by contrast, the mindset of spirit dominated people leads to life and peace. Praise God. And it's so easy to kind of read over this and miss this, but I want you to see it. I want you to write it down. I want you to ponder at this and meditate on this. The spirit always leads to life and peace. That's what he's saying, always. 
100% of the time. That is where the spirit of God leads. It is what he does. It is who he is. He leads to life because he is life. He leads to peace because he is peace. And Paul is saying the spirit dominated nature is also a one lane road, but it doesn't lead to death. It leads to life and peace that is found in God. And again, always say always, 100% of the time. You see, you, you will never, as a believer, need to pull up Google Maps when you're on this road and wonder, where am I going? You can always know, I am going to life and peace. That's how the Spirit works. That's where the Spirit always leads. And I want you to think about this because this is where the lie of the enemy comes in because the enemy tells us, doesn't he? Did he tell anyone this week? Did he tell anyone this week, that's not true. God doesn't want what is best for you. God is not leading you to life. God is stealing fun and joy away from you. Has anybody heard that lie even this week? See, we need to understand what Paul is saying here. The spirit always leads to life and peace. And so that means when the spirit is wooing us to Jesus, he's wooing us to life. When the spirit is inviting us to repent and to confess our sins, he's wooing us to life. When he's urging us to resist temptation, he's leading us to life, amen? When he's calling us to holiness, he's leading us to life when he's inviting us to do hard things because we follow him, he's inviting us to life. When he's calling you to forgive that person that you do not want to forgive, that you do not think you can forgive, he's calling you to life. The spirit always leads to life. He leads to life when he's calling us to trust his promises, even when they don't seem like they're ever going to be fulfilled. He's leading us to life. Whenever he is calling you to do what God says and put God first and obey and follow righteousness, he's leading you to life. That is what the spirit does. He only always leads to life and peace. The spirit only ever leads you to what is good. And that needs to be a bedrock unshakable conviction of our souls that we know he is always only for our good. We need to, I think, sometimes think more deeply when we read the Bible speaking of life. I think it's easy to pass over that word. We think we know what it means, but it's telling us something so important, so rich. That's why Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. See, that's the path of death, right? That's the mind of the flesh. Jesus says, I came that they may have what? Tell me. Life and have that kind of life more abundantly. So, so it's not like, you know, life, real life, good life is over here and then Jesus is over here. That, that's not what he's saying. No, Jesus is life. And the spirit leads us to life. True life is only found in the author of life. Does that make sense? See, that is why sometimes in the scripture, life is used as a synonym for being in relationship with God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus also said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life because he is life. 
And see, the Spirit, he comes and he writes God's laws on the hearts of his people and he creates life that, that delights in God and treasures Jesus. And, and that begins the moment you bow to Jesus. He fills you with life and he fills you with peace. And that peace comes from being reconciled to God and from knowing that God is our omnipotent ally. And I just want to ask you, how much more eagerly would we pursue the Lord and and pursue walking in his ways if we really believe that? If we were really convinced that he only, always, 100% of the time, no exceptions, leads us to life and peace. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that God is for you, not against you, that God only wants your best? That's what Paul is telling us here. He's again making the point in the flesh, and we cannot get right with God. It is only the work of the Spirit that makes us new. And that leads us to the third contrast, two incompatible mindsets. And that is the contrast between hostility and peace. In verses seven and eight, Paul says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And those two sentences are two of the most important sentences on the flesh anywhere in the Bible. Paul is kind of giving us a diagnosis of life apart from God, what it's like. And he says four things to describe it. He says it's hostile to God. It does not submit to God. It cannot submit to God and it cannot please God. And it is so important that you get this. See, if we as Christians don't, get this, we will never get the gravity of the staggering news that we have been reconciled to God. And if you're not a Christian and you don't get this, then you will not understand what must be overcome for you to be made right with God. So I'm going to, I want to show you each of these really briefly. In verse six, he says, the reason the flesh leads to death is because it's hostile or opposed to God. And very few people think of themselves this way, right? Like tell your neighbor, who doesn't believe, you know, you're hostile to God and he'll probably get hostile to you because he won't like it, right? Because he doesn't think of himself that way. But what it uh, essentially means is opposition and it can come with different levels of heat, but it means opposition. It can take different forms from maybe from the open attacks of, you know, the new atheists and people that are going after faith savaging any kind of faith as evil and wicked to the other end of the spectrum where people are just silent and apathetic and indifferent to maybe to people who just want to argue about it to maybe people are just content. They think to live without God and they think everything is well, but underneath all of those things is opposition. I don't like to talk about God. I don't like to think about God. I am annoyed that God comes up in conversations. I feel threatened when that happens. See, underlying all of this is this internal opposition to allowing God to be our center. And the root, the root of all of this, please hear, the root of this is a suicidal love affair with the self with personal autonomy, personal freedom, especially autonomy and freedom from God. So how how does this opposition show itself? Well, the second thing Paul says is is it does not submit to God's law. So in the flesh, we disregard God's way. See, submitting to God's law would mean we have to recognize that he's God and we're not. 
that we are subordinate to him, that he is creator and we're the creature, but the flesh refuses to see this. The flesh doesn't want to submit. It wants to be autonomous. It wants to be God. And go back to Genesis and what was the original temptation that led to all this mess we have seen forever and ever in our world, right? You can be like God. That's the heart of sin. That's the heart of sin. Flesh does not submit. Third, Paul says the flesh not only does not submit, it cannot. It, it, in other words, it is incapable, it is unable. Uh, he, he said it cannot. Now, think carefully here. Paul, the flesh says, is unable to submit to God and his ways. And so this means it's not like people really want to belong to God, but God keeps them out. God's not letting them in, not at all. That is not what he's saying. This inability, this cannot is rooted in a deep spiritual lack of desire that is sourced in our natural spiritual blindness And so therefore, out of that, we cannot submit to God and we won't submit to God because we don't see God as beautiful and worthy of our praise. We don't see the work that Jesus did on the cross as the only hope we have in life. And so we don't trust him and we don't treasure him. We trust in other things, we treasure other things. And so this means that by nature, we're not just neutral, moral free agents floating around in the universe waiting to choose the best option. Not at all. By nature, Paul says, we are unable to submit to God. And that means he's been telling us we are in bondage. We are powerless to free ourselves. We are not free to choose God because we don't want to. And therefore we are unable to. And that means fourth, and this is in verse eight, those in the flesh cannot please God. And these must be among the most sobering words in all the Bible, by nature, left to ourselves, we cannot please God. And this is actually a a euphemism for saying that we are, apart from Christ, all under the just wrath of God. And it doesn't matter how good our lives look on the outside because of what's true on the inside, that our hearts don't trust, don't delight, don't treasure God. You know, contrary to popular opinion, God is not after external empty morality, just external behaviors. See, we can be moral people, good in the eyes of the world and yet far from God. And I'm convinced that more people are gonna end up in that ultimate destination of death because of this belief than any other reason. They think they are good enough in themselves. But the truth, the reality is they are far from God and therefore liable to the judgment of God And it is so easy to be deceived in that place. It is so easy to be deceived in our self-righteousness as we look around by all of our good works. You know, we, have you noticed this? (laughs) I mean, probably about other people, not yourself. You probably haven't noticed, but have you noticed how other people, they notice all the good things they do and they ignore the bad things they do. Has anybody noticed this? Has anybody ever stopped one day and looked in the mirror and said, Oh, I do that too. That's the natural state of a human being and we need the spirit of God to break out of it because it leads only to death. It leads only to judgment. We think we're good apart from God when we're not. And therefore, we find ourselves in this place of hostility to God and we can deceive ourselves 
about ourselves if we don't move out of it. And now, I want to point something out that I think is practically very important. If these four things are true, and they are, I want to give you three implications. Number one, this means that no one ever is a likely candidate to become a Christian. Have you ever found yourself thinking about someone, oh, they would be such a good Christian? Or maybe you look at someone and think, nah, they're never going to do it. (laughs) They might do it, but they might not do it. I want to just tell you that is flawed, false thinking. No one is a likely candidate to become a a Christian because we cannot please God in the flesh. That's what Paul is saying. It is impossible. Second, this means that every Christ follower is a miracle. Every Christ follower is a miracle. Some of you are like, well, I don't know if I'm a miracle. If you think you're not a miracle, you may need to think again. If you think you're not a miracle, that means you think you somehow, some way did this by yourself. And we cannot in the flesh please God. We don't even want to. So when that happens, it's because God works a miracle in our our lives. And really, if you understand that, that should encourage you. Because that means God came after you. God loved you even when you didn't love him, when you didn't seek him, he still came after you and that should fill you with confidence and it fill you with gratitude. And then third, this should, this should fuel our prayers for the lost all around us because we realize that the only way anyone ever comes to Christ is not because of our persuasive arguments, but because of, our, uh, because of the, the supernatural work of God. And then if you take all of this and you turn it on its head, the inverse is, The implication is that those who are in the spirit can do all those things because of the spirit. We are no longer hostile to God, but we treasure him. We're no longer defiant, but we're obedient in the heart. We're no longer in bondage, but we have been set free. We're no longer displeasing to God, but we are pleasing to God. Do you see how different these two realms are? And this just magnifies the beauty of the work of the spirit. Number four, two opposing powers, Paul points out, and those are self versus spirit. Look at verse nine. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, you should mark down right here. This is the ultimate definition of what it means to be a believer. It's the ultimate difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Not different ideas or personalities or families of origin or upbringing, but the spirit, it's the spirit, the presence of the spirit of God dwelling in us. And I want to encourage you, if you're taking notes, you should circle, highlight, underline that word dwell. The Greek uh, word for translated dwell is, is connected to the word that has the idea of home or house or dwelling It just means that God has taken up residence in you. God has moved in. And so you just need to be reminded, Christian, that your your heart is not like a, you know, freeway rest stop that God pulls into just to like stretch his legs for a few moments and he gets back on the road, moving on to the next human heart. No, look what Paul says. He is saying God dwells in you. Your heart is now where God lives, where God dwells. And that means, are you listening? God is always near God never leaves or forsakes you. When 
It means when you're, you feel alone, you're not alone. It means he's always working within you because he is always within you and he promises never to leave you or forsake you. And he, he does that by making his home in you. Your heart is where he dwells. The spirit of the almighty God, your omnipotent ally dwells within you. That was a really good place for an amen. You guys blew it. Maybe I'll give you another chance. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? This is why in other places in the New Testament, Paul urges us not to quench the spirit, not to grieve the spirit because the spirit is right there. He is within us. He's established his residency in, in us. And so we are to live for him and with him because he is in us. And notice the language. This is so easy to overlook. You go back and read it again. Not only is the spirit in you, you are what? In the spirit. You see that? You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And, and that means, you know, we've, we've already seen that the flesh is to be under the power and influence and authority of the flesh. But that means, therefore, to be in the spirit is to be under the power and influence and authority of the spirit. And that means the enslaving power of the flesh is broken in your life. And we're under God's care, God's influence, God's power, God's authority. And so this massive change has occurred in our lives because we are in Christ and he is in us. We are in the spirit and he is in us. In fact, it's it's so striking. Paul goes on to say, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is one of the clearest statements about what it means to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to have the spirit. And quite frankly, if we don't have the spirit, it means we don't belong to God. Think of the contrast here. Indwelling sin is the mark of the children of Adam, but the indwelling spirit is the defining mark of those who have been made children of God in Jesus. And contrary to what some seem to teach sometimes, the gift of the spirit is this initial universal blessing for all who trust in Jesus. And of course, there can be future and fuller and richer experiences of the spirit, fresh fillings of the spirit, but every genuine believer has the spirit. And I, I just love this. Notice, did, did anybody notice how in verse nine, it, it says the spirit is, is called the, the spirit and then the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ. Anybody else notice that? This is so rich. It's the entire, it's just the Trinity. It's not three different spirits here. It's one spirit. And, and so this means to have the spirit in you is to have the spirit of God in you. It means that you have the spirit of Christ in you. We're not confusing the persons of the Trinity, but we're emphasizing they all share the same divine essence. What the father does, he does through the son by the spirit. And if you're not sure you're tracking with all that, that's okay because God is infinite and you are not. And this is just supernatural at some level. We have to say that God lives in us by the spirit and, and, and we receive him in his life. But again, let me come back to what's so practical about this. This means you are never, never, never without Jesus. He is always, always, always with you, in you by his spirit. On your way to work tomorrow morning and you're nervous about that presentation that you've got to do. Some of you are already sweating right now in church 
24 hours ahead of it, but he's with you. And when you feel that sudden rush of temptation come against you and you don't think you can withstand, he is with you. When you are facing suffering or pain or relational tension or heartache, and sometimes it just seems like it comes out of nowhere, right? He is with you. He is near. He is at work. You are in his hands. You are not alone. Wherever you are, he is there. Whatever you're going through, he is with you. I mean, just think about how committed God must be if he's so committed to us that he promises that he will always live in us. Now, I know the inevitable question, maybe some of you have been pondering this for a while this morning is, well, how do I know? How do I know the spirit is within me? And the simplest answer I can give is this, you treasure him, you love him, you believe in him from the heart. You see, Paul makes this so clear because knowing what we know about the flesh, faith never is gonna arise from the flesh. Treasuring is never going to arise from the flesh. And I, I like to tell people sometimes when they ask me a question like this, they're wondering about their relationship to God. Do I really have one? Most of the time I would say the very fact that you are asking the question is a sign that you're in Christ. The very fact that you're wondering, the very fact that you care is a sign that he is in you because those who are in the flesh would never ask that. Does that make sense? See, you see your sin. This is kind of, we're going back to Romans 7. You you see your sin. You see the holiness of God. You recognize the judgment you deserve. You see that you're unable to save yourself. I mean, you've tried, right, to pick yourself up by your bootstraps over and over again, but all you do is trip, right? You know you cannot do it, and you know that in Jesus alone do you find an all-satisfying Savior. And so you have this new delight in God And I know it's not perfect. I know sometimes we do the wrong things. We choose sin. But the fact that we love God, and see, this is what happens, right? When you're in Christ, when the Spirit is in you, and you choose sin, and in that moment you wanted to do the sin, right? But when you choose sin, it doesn't taste as good as it used to, right? When you choose sin, your heart's kind of grieved, right? You find yourself thinking, I wish I hadn't done that. Why are you grieved? Because you've grieved the spirit of God and the spirit is in you and he's grieving and so you're grieving. Does this make sense? See, this is part of what it means to live in this world, this broken world where God has changed us, but we haven't received the fullness of all his promises yet. There's so much more to come, but the fact that we have the changes that we see in our lives tells us that God is there and God is at work and he's gonna complete that work that he's begun in us. Let me read verses 10 and 11 and we'll be done. But if Christ is in you, Paul says, and this is Jesus in us by the spirit, he says, although the body is dead because of sin, our souls have been redeemed, but our bodies haven't yet. We're still subject to death. He says, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And we've been credited Jesus' righteousness. And so we are now these new people because of what Jesus has done for us. And we don't know it all in fullness, but it is all true now. And there's more to come. And that's what verse 11 is about. 
Verse 11 tells us that the Holy Spirit is like a down payment of what God is going to do in the end. If the spirit of him, Paul writes, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And he's talking about our future resurrection here. He's saying the same same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that dwells in Jesus' people now and promises to raise Jesus' people to everlasting life one day, just like he raised Jesus to life 2,000 years ago. And so even in our struggles now, Romans 7, we have the spirit as a down payment, a guarantee of what God will one day do in fullness And so Christian, Paul calls you today to know who you are and to know whose you are. And when we lean into this, when we begin to live into these realities, we are living in the spirit. We're gonna talk more about what that means next week. There's a lot of more really, really good stuff to come. So I hope you'll be back here next Sunday as we look at that. But let's bow our heads for prayer and let's give thanks to God for what he is doing in our lives. Father, we, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for all that you are for us. Forgive us for the ways we have neglected you, minimized you, walked away from you. Lord, these are stunning truths and we ask that you would help us to personally appropriate them by faith Help us not to rely on anything good we can do, but to just keep setting our minds on you. Just keep adoring you. Just keep worshiping you in your goodness. Just keep, Lord, trusting all that you are for us and just allow these realities to transform every day of our lives. And Lord, we wanna pray also for those maybe who have not yet given their lives to you. We pray, Lord, that you would call them by your spirit and convince them, Lord, that the way of the flesh leads to death always, but the way of the spirit leads to life and peace always, and that they can only find their life in you. Lord, help each one of us today to look to you for life, for peace, for goodness, for glory, for everything, Lord, that our hearts long for. We know we only find it in you and we thank you, Lord, that you have sent your spirit. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.